I pray that we can lean into this book of Esther and say, so what does it mean for us and, and what learning might there be? And God, I pray today that we would be open-handed in how we approach it and, um, and that you would speak to your people. Speak to these people gathered here in this place for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated this morning. The poet Maya Angelou talked about developing courage in an interview with the Harvard Business Review. (laughs) And when she was asked about some of the most important lessons she learned from her mother, Miss Angelou said this, I would say that my mother encouraged me to develop courage. Courage. Say it with me, courage. (laughs) And she taught me by being courageous herself. And after years of leaving her and I think becoming courageous, I realized that one isn't born with courage. One develops it. One develops it. And you develop it by doing small, courageous things in the same way that one wouldn't set out to pick up a hundred-pound bag of rice if that was one's aim. The person would be advised to pick up a five-pound bag and then a ten-pound bag and then a twenty-pound bag and so forth until one builds up enough muscle to actually pick up 100 pounds. And that's the same way with courage. She says, you develop courage by doing courageous things, small things, but things that cost you some exertion, mental and I suppose spiritual exertion. This is how courage is built. This book is one I've never preached on before in church. I realized that when I was reading through my commentaries, like, oh, I have not ever preached on Esther before. There's probably many reasons for that. Just the little passage we run, which pivotally shows the great reversal starting when Esther has the courage to speak truth to power, to the king. And there's many, many layers of things going on in this book that are challenging and troubling, but also encouraging as well. I think this morning, just to give you a little bit of background, we're going to spend time, I'm going to geek out for a minute or two, it's going to be okay, and then I want to just jump back into the passage we read. I want to geek out to give you some background and then to give you sort of the bigger context of the whole book. So a few things we need to know about this book is it's placed again within the, with Ezra and Nehemiah because it was during the Persian period in the history of Israel. King Ahasuerus was also, also named King Xerxes, would have been about 486 a B.C. to 465 B.C., right in that range we're looking at the, his reign. The location for the story of Esther is not Jerusalem, as much of the Hebrew Bible is about ancient Israel, uh, and then when the kingdom is split between Judah and uh, the northern kingdoms, and then the loss of the northern kingdoms. This, though, is in one of the occupying imperial powers, the Persians, in one of their uh, three capitals that they had at that time, in this, the palace at Susa, And so this is where this is taking place, way out in modern-day, what we'd call modern-day Iran. This is also about the Jews of the diaspora, Jews that had been taken when their land was overrun by these imperial powers, were taken captive, and then later Cyrus allowed some Jews to return, in fact, allowed all the Jews to return that wanted to, but not all of them did, and they remained dispersed. So we talk about the Jewish diaspora, which even to this day, from those original diaspora, there was Jewish communities scattered around the world and have been scattered again and again and again. But this goes back to that. And so this is the diaspora community of Jews living in ancient Persia who did not return to Jerusalem following Cyrus's decree. And they were still counted, though, as God's people. And they had a role to play in the whole. 
The book of Esther, a little more background here, is only one of two in the Bible named for women. Did anyone know you get extra points this morning if you can name the other book in the Bible named for a woman? Oh, wow. Well, geez, glad I didn't offer money because I would be broke now. Uh, $20. Anyone who could, oh, wow. Oh, that warms my pastoral heart. Like, the, there's, there's an issue with biblical literacy these days. We recognize that. But now my heart is just slightly warm. Um, I could ask deeper questions about, now, do you know all the major characters in Ruth? Some of you would, but okay, we'll stop. We'll stop. Keep, move on. No, 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 no. That was not an actual invitation. Ushers, take that woman out. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's also one of the two books in the entire Bible that doesn't actually mention God's name. The other is the Song of Songs. I don't know if you knew that, but God is not named directly in the book of Ruth. Caveat, because I'm a geek, uh, there is an extended version of Ruth in the Greek Orthodox Bible and the Roman Catholic Bible that God is named in those uh, editions and versions, but we don't have time to unpack all that today. That's a, that's a buy me a coffee later conversation. Um, and so, again, God is not named, but even though God is not named in the story, there's a lot of these coincidences and correlations that point to this idea of God working through human will and decision as well. So it's a little different. And in fact, one of the key verses for, I think it's 413, where uh, uh, Esther's adopted uncle is telling her that she has been brought up into the palace and becomes queen through this contest we'll talk about in a second, says for such a time as this, that points to this idea of God working through both human agency and working in the scenes to move and to bring about his will. So anyway, another thing is it was set again during a time when Jews would have experienced uh, racial hatred because they'd been a minority in Persia for years. Okay, the other thing I want to talk about really quick here is the characters. So let's just name the characters as we look at the book of Esther a little more. One of the characters that comes up right away in the early chapter is uh, Vashti. Vashti is the current queen, and she loses her role. We'll talk about that in a quick summary walkthrough of the chapters. Other one, of course, is King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. Uh, his right-hand man at the time is a guy that gets elevated early in the early chapters. Haman is his name. So there we got the third character here. The fourth character is uh, the uncle uh, who adopted Esther, or, or Hadassah, as her Hebrew name is, and his name is Mordecai. So we've got Vashti, Ahasuerus, Haman, Mordecai, and then Harbona, who is another uh, eunuch servant of the king who we read about in chapter 7, and then Esther, of course, or Hadassah. Uh, now, a few other things we want to say before we walk through a summary and ask some questions of the passage. Um, so a few things to talk about. The... the uh, the name of Esther and her experience here, she is vulnerable culturally in a multiple ways, as, as we already hinted at here. Number one, she is an orphan in a family, uh, in, in a family or clan-oriented world. So she's an orphan. She's adopted in. And so she experiences that sort of piece of vulnerability and alienation in that she was not born into that family, so she is brought into that family. So within her uh, Jewish subculture, she herself is an orphan to the family she's a part of. The second thing we learn about, of course, in this story is that she's a woman in a man's world, very much in a patriarchal world, which, by the way, is mocked in the larger story of Esther. And I encourage you to read the whole book uh, slowly uh, after the service sometime in the next day or two. And the third way that she was culturally vulnerable is she's a minority Jew in the Persian Empire. Uh, and so this idea of being a minority within a larger predominant culture, how many of us in Canada, how many of you in this room could relate to some part of this? Everyone in this room can relate to some piece of this in some way, uh, most likely. So the queen contest. Uh, we, she, early on in the book, she is, there's a contest to find the most beautiful woman because Vashti's been removed from her role. 
And so, uh, again, she wins this contest, but she's vulnerable as the removal of the last queen Vashti indicates. If Vashti could be removed, there's no reason to say why Esther couldn't also be removed if she displeases the king. The story, a little more background, the story has struggles and problems facing those with less power, minority, or subordinate persons or groups. So this is an overriding theme in the book of Esther, this idea of what do you do when you're not in that powerful position in society. Uh, And so this is her case. She's less power. She's in a a minority that was conquered and enslaved and brought over, uh, and then subordinate persons or groups. I think it's important uh, that we really wrestle with some of these things within the book of Esther. The story shows that we often are asking questions about how do we gain or regain power and control over what we can control in our lives and over what we can't control when we're not at the center of power, however that power is constructed. So these are big questions that this book raises. So a little more background. I think the church in North America has a lot to learn about relationship with power uh, and how we wrestle with that. Uh, We're seeing that played out all the time. Finally, uh, a little more background here. Those that have experienced being a minority, whether ethnic, religious, sexual, etc., can learn from this Jewish struggle throughout the ages. And I like how uh, biblical scholar Eugene Roop says this. He says, living as a minority community dependent on the attitude and actions of the majority has kept Jews always in a precarious position. Living as a minority community dependent on the attitude and actions of the majority has kept Jews always in a precarious position. And uh, I'm not a big, like, I don't want to get in the politics of the state of Israel, but for the Jewish diaspora, for the Babylonian captivity, the Persian captivity, uh, all of that, until the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, actually, there was no place where you could go and be a majority Jew anywhere in the world, full stop. Think about that. And that's still, there's lots of conflict, and I don't have time to unpack all of that today, and I have mixed opinions myself. Uh, so I wouldn't want to inflict them upon you. But, um, I mean, I'll inflict other opinions upon you, hopefully rooted with some biblical scholarship and discerning in community. But, um, but if you think about that, it's in 1948. I mean, you're talking from, the, from what we have in our Bible. <laughs> our Bible, there was a little area of freedom under the Maccabees. Uh, that's what Hanukkah is all about. But other than just a little snippet, like literally no place where you could be a Jew in a majority cult. Think about that. Like, just sit with that for a minute. Every one of us, in this room can go someplace where we'd say, okay, I have whatever. However, I'm going to define that majority. There's places in the world. But anyway, interesting. So let's sit sit with that tension. Okay, so uh, let's get into this here, a little more here. Uh, How should we look at this book? Are you guys still with me? I I know I feel like I'm rattling a little bit to myself, but are you, amen? Yes? Yes? All right. Someone said I need to stop asking if people are awake, and I need to ask, who is that? Somebody told me I need to ask. Are you having fun? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Harry, are you having fun? Fun might be a bit extreme, but let's just, let's, are you having adjacent to fun? No, something like that, you know? (laughs) Okay. John Wesley talked about this idea that he would go out and preach and set himself on fire and the people would watch me burn. I think I have the same thing going on, but not at the same level, so (laughs) for the wrong reasons sometimes. Okay, um, so again, there's different versions of the text. We've talked about that. How do, we, how do we understand Esther? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is nobody agrees on, on how to understand Esther. As it corresponds uh, like one-to-one with actual historical events, there's some holes, there's some issues with that. 
Others would say it was created as a festival story or a festival novella, a festival story to explain why Jews celebrate the holiday of Purim, uh, which is around our Easter time in that Marchish uh, time. Uh, this idea of, uh, you know, how did the story come about? There are other things that do align historically. Um, I'm a bit, when it comes to things like this, I'm a bit kind of in the Boyd camp. I want to lean towards the belief in the historicity of much of this, but I'm not going to die on the hill. I'm not going to lose my salvation or lose my faith if something, there's something that doesn't quite connect because, again, ancient views of writing and prose are different than how we modern people would look at it, right? Like, so how we would write history is different than how someone in the ancient world would write history. Uh, and so, but there's certainly elements of this as an intentionally constructed retelling of this story. Uh, and I think that has some power in it that obviously it's in our Bible. And there was debates back in the day about should it stay in the Bible. Luther, of all people, hated this book. Luther, I think he hated James and he hated Esther and some other one. Luther had a real issue. Luther also was a, an anti-Semite. Uh, if you have Mennonite background, which I have part Mennonite background, Luther uh, was an anti-Semite, so obviously Esther would cause all kinds of problems for him. Um, but, but the other thing is, uh, if you have Mennonite background, Luther hated one group of people worse than he hated Jews. He hated the Mennonites even more. Uh, and he, he had some zingers of quotes about Mennonites. And it just like, uh, so he was anti-Semite, but, but Mennonites he was ready to kill, like just be done with them. Uh, you know, and uh, like, there was no excuse for the Anabaptists. Luther was a real, real, real interesting character. Um, there's some good things from Luther too, but you know, you got to kind of hold that intention. So, um, all right, a little more about this, and then we'll walk through the, the book. Um, this, again, this gives us the background of this, the holiday of Purim. The festival is directly tied to this in in fact, the casting of lots in chapter 3, verse 7, was used to determine the fate of the Jews and uh, that the Jews survive uh, in co-opting this, and so the holiday of Purim exists because of this. Um, there are several such stories or narratives in the Bible that are used as framing holidays that we use liturgically, we use to celebrate throughout the year. Um, Again, for the Jews, Exodus 12, 14 is a direct command to celebrate Passover. And then when Jesus comes and uh, Christians experience Jesus as this full embodiment of all those things, we, our Easter then gets tied into that as well. In Matthew 1 and Luke 2, we see uh, this functioning for Christians, for Christmas rather, for Christmas. Christmas is a holiday we celebrate because we see these texts that tell us about the story that we commemorate. The passion narratives for Easter around Passover give us this as well. These texts that tell us about things we celebrate in order to reorder our lives around the story of God and the story of Jesus as followers of Jesus. The New Testament narratives, though, unlike the Old Testament, Exodus and Esther, don't have a statement specifically saying, establish Christmas, establish Easter, but yet they function this way in the life of the church. Okay, uh, so how is this thing structured? Quick. Uh, before we get into a little more storytelling here, there is a narrative movement here. There is a problem, action, resolution. Simple story narrative. Problem, action, resolution, right? Um, and so that, this would be a dominant way of, of, of wiring any number of stories. Uh, there's a tension, and then there's action in response to that, and there's ultimate resolution of whatever that tension is. The other way that biblical scholars have told us that Esther is uh, laid out is this chiastic um, structure. And I say it with, or just look at this for a second. So a chiastic structure is something where there's symmetry. There is a thing that happens here, and then it's mirrored in a different way in the story. And the Bible Project has a great uh, definition here. The chiasm is a literary technique in a piece of literature, narrative or poetry. This is me geeking out. This is the professor shell. We'll get off. I'll take the hat off in a second, so just hang with me. 
designed with a symmetrical pattern that highlights certain themes and points of detail as being really significant. Again, another plug for the Bible project. Great stuff here. Uh, again, that, that word comes out of the key, the Greek letter key, which we spell it in, in English C-H-I, uh, which is sort of was written as an X, sort of X marks the spot, as it were. Um, so this, this chiastic structure. So let's look at this structure for a second, and then we get back into our story. So this is the whole book of Ruth in one slide right here, or Ruth, Esther, sorry, the whole book right here. So we look here at this chiastic structure, the splendor of the Persian king, and there's two banquets in Esther chapter 1 through 8. Again, read the book later. I encourage you to do this. And then we see Esther becoming queen, replacing Vashti. And in uh, chapters, uh, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Mordecai saves the king. Mordecai is at the gates of the city, and he hears of a plot to murder the king. And Mordecai shares this, uh, and this gets relayed to the king, Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus then has high view of Mordecai because they research this and they find out, indeed, there was a plot against the king. And so Mordecai, who is also part of the Jewish diaspora, uh, the uncle adopted Esther, he saves the king. And so he is experiencing a level of power in the palace. But then we also learn about Haman being elevated to power, that Haman is the right-hand man as well. And again, Haman, though, is upset as Haman's elevated to power. As we look through the book, and I'm just giving you the summary right now, as Haman's elevated to power, he's mad because when he went through and being marched through and paraded through town, uh, he asked you know, for everyone to bow to him when he was paraded through town. Well, the other guy that was recently elevated, Mordecai, refuses to bow to Haman. And Haman gets something, a bonnet in his bee over Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow to Haman. And Mordecai's response was, I'm not going to bow to because I'm a Jew. I will not bow and worship to anybody other than the one true God, Yahweh. Uh, now, there's a whole bunch of other backstory to this as well in terms of Haman's background and ancient oppressors of the Amalekites in Israel. We don't have time to unpack that story, but there's stories within stories going on as well. But so Haman's elevated to power. Haman gets a bee in his bonnet. So D, this chiastic structure, Haman's decree to destroy the Jewish people. Haman comes to the king, and the king is revealed as sort of a guy that isn't the brightest guy. Like he just blindly trusts who's ever in his circle around him. He's mainly concerned about blowing smoke in my ear. I think there's another way to say that, but that's not appropriate for Sunday morning. Uh, it's people that like give him false praise. And also he uh, likes, to, likes this sense of honor and just partying. And so the king, Ahasuerus, is really swayable. And so Haman comes to him and doesn't even name the people as best we can tell, doesn't even tell like, who this group is, their ethnicity, why, but basically says there's enemies, and here's what I want, king. Would you give me the authority? The king gives him his seal, which is a sign of power, that when Haman's operating with the king's seal, he's basically operating with the king's power, the ultimate law of the land. And so Haman gets this decree to destroy the Jewish people. Esther and Mordecai begin to to think and plan and, and plot to figure out how do we deal with this? This is horrible. And so, and then F, I'm just walking down the structure here. Esther has a banquet. She's going to throw a banquet to invite the king, a banquet in order to talk to him about this plot against her and her people. And the king does not realize yet that this is her and her people, and this is her, his queen that he chose out of all of the young women of the Persian empire, the ancient empire, in this beauty pageant. And so this idea, and then Haman begins to plan Mordecai's execution and has this big gallows built where we pick up the chapters as well. And now let's step back out and then we'll, we'll land it with some retelling of the chapters we read. So Esther then has a second banquet. At the first banquet, she's sort of warming up the king and there's this wine banquet and this party and she's not ready yet to ask. 
And she's building up her courage to have the big ask that we read in chapter 7. And so she, again, uh, is moving towards that, the counterpoint of the second banquet. But I want to stop at the pivot for a second here. Haman is humiliated and Mordecai is exalted. So there's this whole conversation when the king wants to say, you know what, he, had, he couldn't sleep one night. And because he couldn't sleep, he had some palace, oh, poor palace employee, go drag out the royal records and go read them to me because I can't count sheep, but give me some boring reading and I know I can fall asleep then. And so he brings out the palace official and the palace official, you know, who knows, maybe he was on duty, maybe he was yanked out of his bed and he begins reading from the royal records. And in the royal records comes the story to remind him not that long ago that Mordecai at the gates of the city was, heard this story and that Mordecai saved his life and the plot of assassination was revealed. And so King, the next day he's meeting and, and Haman, his right-hand man's there and, and the King Ahasuerus says to Haman, he says, Haman, what would you do to honor somebody? What would you do to honor somebody who's done something amazing for you? As somebody who's made such a difference and somebody, and, and Haman being the selfish person that he is and has a bee in his bonnet and easily whatever, but also has big ego, Haman's like thinking, oh, the king's going to honor me. I'm the guy he's thinking of. So, so you know what he does. He's like a bad used car salesman. I got this guy on the hook. I'm going to try to sell him all the things, including the extra rust package, you know? And he's like, oh, you need to parade this person out. You need to give them, you know, your signaling. You need to, to throw banquets in their honor. You need to, to make this person just, you need to do all the things to make them look so glorious and shiny for everyone in the land. Again, thinking that the king was going to do it for him. And then the king says, okay, do that for Mordecai. And Haman loses his mind right? Because Mordecai is his arch enemy. Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And he's already worked at getting this uh, genocidal plot going not against just Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people within the empire. So Haman is humiliated. Mordecai is exalted. Esther's working on the second banquet with the king to try to undo the work. And this is where we picked up our story about Haman in chapter seven. Haman's executed instead of Mordecai. The evil of the evil, the violence of the violent is turned on its head. Now, there's some interesting themes there that we can wrestle with as well. But let me finish this for a second, then we'll land it. Esther and Mordecai plan to reverse the decree. And then they find out, of course, they can't actually reverse the decree because the king said if he gives a speech, he must have been like the pope. Turns out, historically, there's some issues with that. But for the story's sake, the decree of annihilation against the Jews couldn't be reversed. And so Esther and Mordecai figure out, how can we do this? And so there's a counter decree that's offered to say that they can defend themselves, which normally they are an enslaved sub-minority group. They were not to have weapons and to defend themselves this way. But now they get a decree saying, okay, well, we can't undo the genocidal decree, but what we can do is get the king to sign off on a decree that they can do self-defense. And that's what happens. The decree is there to do self-defense, the counter decree to save the Jewish people. And then Mordecai is elevated, uh, becomes the right-hand man of the king, and Mordecai is in that place of where Haman was, is what happens here. And then the last two stepping back out to where we began, Queen Esther and Mordecai save the Jewish people. The Jewish people defend themselves, uh, and they are not annihilated. And then finally, there are these other feasts of celebration and the call for them to remember this for all history about how God delivered. So that, in short, is the whole book of Esther. Everyone say amen. Okay. Uh, we might not do communion today, but I do want to share a little more before we landed. Are you having fun? Yeah. Okay. Storytelling. When I was a kid, I remember my parents in the little Pentecostal church, there was a minister that came through that had these tapes on the Bible and story. 
and I'll talk more about this when I, after uh, Lawrence Chung is here, uh, more story, but it was called the Dan and Louie tapes, Dan and Louie tapes. And I made my kids, well, I didn't make them. My, my kids were invited to listen to them as well. And he went through and illustrated and told all of the stories of the Bible in a very, not all of them, but a lot of the stories of the Bible in a very funny way with a, with a, with a I don't know what you call this, ventriloquist dummy thing. Uh, and anyway, and as a kid, I was fascinated by it. And it was one way I began to have a curiosity about the word was through the telling of these stories. Okay, so let's just look at the, the text we did today and then land with some more applications this story, again, in chapter 7, we looked at 7, verse 1. The king and Haman came to dine with Queen Esther. So in that part of the story. And Esther gives this second banquet, again, like I said, in which Haman is now invited to the second banquet. And Haman, of course, who's all about Haman uh, and cannot say no to this, uh, does come to this second banquet. And it becomes his last supper, as it were. Uh, there's danger in the air already at this point of the second banquet. We read already seven, chapter 7, verses 2. Uh, through uh, four here. On the second day of the banquet of wine, the king asked Esther, what is it, Esther? Why are you inviting me to this banquet again? Like, why are we doing feasting all of a sudden again? My home church just had a feast last night uh, down in Delta uh, with, uh, with one, of our, one of our couples here at the church hosted, and we feasted on ribs and desserts, and there were so many desserts, and I had too many desserts. In fact, my stomach hurt later that evening because of the, <laughs> I kept putting the cream puffs and the lemon bars and the, and the, and the apple strudel and all the things, and, and on, top, on top of already like two helpings of ribs, I'm still paying the price. Okay. So the king is like, why are we doing this again? <laughs> what is your question, Queen Esther? Why? And this is when she works up her courage to say, to denounce his right-hand man. And again, and she pads it, and, and we see this art of diplomacy going on saying, if you were just going to put us back in slavery, as it were, I wouldn't have made a big deal about it. Well, that's a pretty horrible thing to say from a modern perspective, but in the ancient world, she's trying to say that the gravity of this is so much higher than anything else. This is annihilation, this is genocide. And she said, Again, she approaches the king and she petitions. And so the king, again, offers her half the kingdom. That's probably a bit of a wink-wink thing, by the way. Not literally half the kingdom, but just saying, you're going to have a lot of authority and free reign. She turns that down and says, if I one favor, give us our lives. And this harkens back to Moses, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, asking for God's mercy on the people when God was worked up. Kenneth Carter says this, at times the congregation has access, meaning you and me, to political and economic resources, and the pastor is a participant in outcomes that affect people and communities beyond those who gather for worship. At other times, the church, the congregation is marginalized and must speak a word of truth against principalities and powers. Esther, here. She asked for survival and the salvation of her people. And the prophetic voices of the recent past have displayed the same boldness, whether you're thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, this idea of the prophetic word speaking up. And we see this here that Esther, while God is not named directly, she is acting prophetically to spare people from destruction and annihilation. And in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, there's different ways the word prophetic is used. There is the charismatic sense in which God gives you a word for someone to encourage, to console, to build up. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, which we want to practice in our gatherings, large and small, and make space for. But there's also that sense of prophetic denunciation, speaking truth to power when power 
is going so wrong and is being so misused and is too concentrated that the church at the margins should have a voice to not simply be the chaplain to the empire, but to denounce the empire in whatever forms Babylon takes, whether it's Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever, 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 Chairman Xi, that there's also a prophetic role of the church. And this is why the powers that be try to either co-opt the church to get us to be passive chaplains to empire so we look the other way. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the confessing church in Nazi Germany versus the German Christian movement, for example. And there's a sense of prophetic that says we must stand for life. We must stand for the kingdom of God, even if it means it will cost us our existence. Because we serve a God who we believe can raise the dead. And so Esther speaks in that prophetic way. And she uses the political system. Like it's a very mixed thing. Jesus said, be as wise as serpent, as innocent as doves. And this is very much what we see happening in the story of Esther. If I found favor, I ask for life. And she uses the language of Haman back in his edict in chapter 3. She restates here in chapter 7. This edict has been passed to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Now, if you know anything about the teachings of Jesus in John chapter 10, there should be an echo going off in your brain. Something's pinging saying, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. There's a reason why the book didn't get thrown out by the likes of Luther. (laughs) The bigger wisdom of the church and the kingdom of God. And so, Mordecai wrote these matters down. Oops, I think I just skipped a page. Oh, yeah, there we go. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. You having fun? Yes. Say yes. (laughs) Okay, now you're just laughing at me. That's not good. Uh, All right. She begins to create a space in her, the way she goes about this, that the king can save face, and then also by turning away from the very verdict or edict that he issued, and also deal with the fact that this is an offense against the king, it's treason against the king, that Haman had a fake offense to get the king to sign off on the annihilation of people. It tells you how silly and you know, messed up this king is. But also that she does this in a way that allows the treason to be aware that Haman actually is working at something treasonous by having his queen murdered. And how can she do this in a way that the king can save face? That's the issue where we wrestle with. There's a time to be prophetic against the empire, and there's a time to know which hill am I going to die on. Jesus said, pay unto Caesar's what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God. Paul said, become all things to all people. Paul appealed to Rome when it helped advance the commission of the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, he also, when it was necessary, he straight up stood against the whole empire. (laughs) Think about that. And we see a mix of this kind of in how Esther's responding here. How How do we weave this? How do we understand? It means that we have to be, again, Innocent as doves, wise as serpents, as Jesus said. So last few verses, just to review again. The king responded to queen. Who is this individual? Haman's named. The oppressor and the enemy is Haman. And Haman's terrified in the presence of the king and queen, as he should be, right? Haman probably didn't realize when he went for this edict, the direct relationship between Esther and the king, or didn't realize between Esther and the rest of the Jewish people. Because Esther also took on a Persian name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and she took on Esther. So she's also trying to live as a minority within this thing. How do I survive? How do I live? How do I thrive? And it's not wrong. Jeremiah commanded the people prophetically, a prophetic word in the charismatic sense, that we are to bless the city that God has placed us in. 
But that does not mean a full assimilation into all of the values of the kingdoms of the world. It also means living in tension. And we see Esther doing that as well. Finally, in the last part of chapter 7, one of the king's eunuchs said, Hey, Haman, Haman was all about Haman, built the gallows. And so they go and they prepare it. And so Haman is now hanged on the gallows. The violent of the violent just turned on them. There's a lot we could say about that. Don't have time. And then finally, we read in the Revised Common Lectionary reading, the last verses come from chapter 9. That now it has been declared that a feast should be in perpetuity to celebrate the deliverance of the Jews from these enemies in ancient Persia. It's interesting as you read about Purim and this holiday, we learn something about celebration here, that there's a place for celebration. Survival is a time for celebration. And I think celebration has a way also of undoing trauma. Not completely. I'm not saying we shouldn't do therapy and all those other things, of course. But, but there's something about celebrating with others that reminds us of life. That life is a gift. It's good that we celebrate marriages. It's good that we celebrate birthdays. It's good that we celebrate those things that remind us that life is precious. And we cannot give it. We can take life, but we cannot give it back. And that we have a high value of life. And that all Christians have a high value of life. And I think it should be a very expansive. We should wrestle with it again. All of creation down to the individual as well. And so this celebration is commanded. There's a sharp distinction, by the way, between the feasts that happen earlier in Esther and the feasts that happen at the end of Esther. The feasts at the beginning are royal feasts, commercialized feasts, pursuit of happiness, pursuit of power, celebrating power feasts. The feasts at the end of Esther are celebrating deliverance and joy and the community. There's a different kind of feasting that the church engages with. Well, I got to land this, and everyone did say amen, and they meant it. <laughs> Roop says this about the meaning and message as we land the plane. Esther cannot be read simply as a story of human fables or political cunning. And the narrative does not see the world, straightforward anyway, as a place where God intervenes to reverse misfortune, misfortune, nor as a place where God is absent or uninterested. In Esther, the drama of life is the realm where God's will works itself out in the course of human events and in cooperation with all those of goodwill. So we're left with some things about power dynamics. We're left with some questions about executive leadership that failed miserably. King Ahasuerus fails continually, taking advice from his counselors without reflection or discernment. Horrible. I'm sure no U.S. presidents or prime ministers in Canada have ever been like King Ahasuerus, but I don't have time to unpack that. He's so dependent and disconnected from the significance of events in his very own palace Political manipulations everywhere, political incompetence is everywhere, but it's a clear picture that humans cannot handle the concentration of power. If I have a politics, certainly it's about justice and aligning with the victim and so on, but it's also about the issues of concentration of power. We do not do well with lots of power. We just don't. What makes for good leadership? The king Ahasuerus surrendered his power to those who knew how to manipulate Manipulate his love of honor, his anxieties, and his desire to be generous. He was easily manipulated. Manipulated. Esther and Haman are skilled political operators, by the way. Esther and Haman. One for evil and one for good. And it matters what we do with the power that we have. And Esther does what a biblical prophet 
work does, exposing political and royal power and taking a skeptical stance. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the type of prophetic voice of the church. It's why the church either is co-opted or crushed. In Canada, the question is, are we being co-opted or crushed, or is it a mix of both? In the U.S., is the church being co-opted or crushed? The myth of the Christian nation, for example, great book, by the way. The church is called, but the church is called to be this alternative community. We are called to be those that bless our city, but we are called to be a different kind of people, the people that speak up for God, to speak for life, who speak for Jesus and the kingdom and, and grace that changes people. That's where the Holy Spirit's anointing is. What makes for good leadership? Esther and Haman were both leaders and skilled political operators. But the biblical tradition holds that generally we cannot handle centralized power. Only one can ultimately handle ultimate centralized power. There was only one ring. No, sorry, sorry, different narrative. The Psalms have this mantra that says this, some may trust in horses and some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I know. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And there's this constant temptation to put our ultimate power, trust in royal power, but royal power will fail and it's fickle. King Ahasuerus one day was an enemy of all the Jewish people. The next day he was the friend. It, it's, we don't put our, ultimately the passing of the kingdoms of the world, they will pass but this is worth pouring your life into. The local, scandalous, decentered, messy local church builds a kind of humanity or has the potential to demonstrate a different way of relating to power and to one another. There is something here in this place and every church that's like it, trying to be faithful to Jesus in our city that there is power here of a different sort of the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy, the moving of the Holy Spirit, on the sons and the daughters, the old men and young men, men and women alike. There's a different kind of power that is not limited by royal ultimate claims, whether they're coming out of Ottawa, D.C., Beijing, wherever. There's another power in the world. And we stand for that. And all of those kingdoms will pass away, but the kingdom of God will continue until one day he comes to bring it fully. Well, there's other things we could say here about minority politics, the Jewish minority, women, gender. I'll give you one more quote from Roop, and then I truly will land the plane, and I invite the worship team to come on up while I say this last bit here. Where is God? Roop says, Esther cannot simply be read as a story of human foibles and political cunning again. The narrative, the story, does not see the world as a place where God intervenes to reverse misfortune, but again, nor is it a place where God is absent or uninterested. In Esther, the drama of life, again, is the realm where God's will works itself out in the course of human events and cooperation again with those of goodwill. Final thought, and there's a whole lot more. There's just tons of richness in this book, as in every book of the Bible. But you know when Esther starts to live, when she really starts to live, is when she stops trying to simply fit totally into the Persian Empire when she begins to identify with her people. And this again is where I see the bridge into Jesus and the local church. When you identify with the people of God centered on Jesus, it brings you liberation, salvation, hope, anointing, and power of the Holy Spirit, no matter what the empire may throw at you in whatever form it takes. And Jesus works through the churches 
And his spirit sustains us. We are made alive in Christ. And he invites all of us of all races, religion, ethnic groups to be born again into a new people who are being saved by God. And when Esther identifies with the people of God and when you identify with the people now centered in Jesus, you are given grace, you are given love, and you are given the very spirit of the creator. And that will sustain you. And this will continue on for generations to bring people alive in Christ. You're part of a miracle when you say yes to Jesus. You're part of a new people. Peter uses the language. We are a new nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood called out of darkness. And so this morning as we land this book of Esther, summer storytelling, we'll have more summer stories, by the way, but I invite you to wrestle with what is this book saying? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? If you're able to, stand with us. And we're going to pray we're going to receive communion. Because in the church, while we have creeds and affirmations, and, well, Baptists, we're a little wonky about it. We say we don't have any creeds, but then we have statements of faith, but the statements of faith aren't binding, but they tell us something, whatever, okay, whatever. Whereas we, you know. But the kind of affirmation that Jesus said is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus gave us a meal. And so when we take communion, we've confessed sins in this service, we've wrestled with word, we've prayed, hopefully outside of this as well, we've engaged in community and service. But when we receive this meal, this wine, this bread, and I'll invite our servers to come forward this morning as well, we are declaring something. In fact, when we do this, this is one of the most revolutionary things we do. We declare that our ultimate identity is in God who died, God who exposed the violence and the sin of humanity, God who became what he was not in order that we might become what we are not. And so this morning as we move to close our service, I invite you again to this table of the Lord physically and spiritually. 